It's a great privilege to preach the word of God. But it's also a great burden to preach the word. Um, Because I know in my heart that for some people here, this may be the final warning. It might be, we don't know. And therefore, there's a great solemnness about preaching this word. Um, Preaching about such a solemn and serious subject as as about the return of the Lord Jesus. And um, I really pray that today the Lord would help us. Help me to speak clearly and to bring the word to us. David has done a very good job of summarizing this parable. But let me say this as well. In a mixed group such as this, many of us are Christians. Many of us do indeed know the Lord Jesus and praise God. But it's very likely in a group, in any church setting, there will be people who hear these words. And on the day the Lord Jesus comes in glory, there will be people who've sat in churches and prayed and sung hymns and met with God's people who will not be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. And when he comes with that suddenness in glory, appearing to all people, there will be those who are not ready who will cry out in fear. And they'll be shocked and taken completely unawares by his return. And this grieves me and burdens me that people should hear the word of God and meet with God's people and know the truth and yet still not be ready and not take heed and not listen to the words that we hear the Lord Jesus speaking to to his disciples and to us. So I do pray that hearts would be touched today and that we would all be reminded of the importance of these words. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus speaks at great length about his return. He's talking primarily to his disciples. And I want to tell you today, the fact that Jesus talks about this at great length means that we should take it very seriously. He doesn't just mention it briefly. He he tells parable after parable and teaches at great length about his return. When Jesus goes to... When when this is recorded for us, this this great discourse about the return of the Lord Jesus, this should should make us sit up and take notice because it's very important. The Lord wants us to be aware of this. In this section, the Lord Jesus tells us several parables which illustrate different aspects of being ready for his return. These are dramatic, these are dynamic, and they're easy to understand and easy to memorize. In every case in these parables, there's usually a person or people who know they should be ready for some sudden event, some expected event, but some event which will happen suddenly. And these people all have a calling and a task to perform, and yet some of them perform this task, and some of them fail to perform this task. And those who perform it well are blessed, and those who neglect this task suffer loss. In chapter 24, we read about a householder, a man who owns a house, and this man knew that a thief was coming to his house at some point on a given night. And this man should have stayed awake and watched out for the thief who was coming to his house to stop him robbing his goods. And Jesus says, It will be like this when he returns, that some people will not be ready for his return. They will not be watching, and it will be like a thief in the night coming suddenly when you least expect it. 
And that man would, would wish that he had stayed awake and kept watch so his house would not be burgled. And then Jesus tells another story about a man, a servant, who's been put in charge of all the master's house while he goes away. And this man is negligent and stupid and foolish. And this man puts his feet up and he enjoys the master's wine and food and he beats the other servants and then the master comes back on a sudden day and finds his servant not doing what he was commanded to do. And this man was thrown out and discarded. And yet Jesus says, on the other hand, there are those who are faithful servants who listen and do the work that he has commanded them to do and those people will be blessed. And then next week we have the parable of the talents where, Jesus, where the man gives all, all his servants different tasks to do while he's away. We'll look at that next week. And then, of course, we've got the teaching about the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, at the end of time, there will be a great division on the judgment day between those who are his people, truly, and those who are not. All this is part of the same section, the same section of teaching. And let me say this to you. These passages... This teaching of Jesus is directed primarily at believing people or professing Christians, people who claim to be believers, primarily. What we might call the visible church. You may not know this term, the visible church. In any given body of of people who meet together and call themselves Christians, there are both true believers and unbelievers who maybe masquerade and call themselves believers. All over this city, you'll find churches today full of people or having people, many of whom are going through the motions and doing things which Christian people do, singing hymns, praying, talking about the Lord Jesus. And yet, in many cases, some of these people may not be saved. They may not truly be regenerate. They may not have the Holy Spirit. They have a semblance of godliness, but they deny its power. And in any group of Christians, you'll find, surely, those who are not truly born again of the Spirit, not truly Christians, but meeting with God's people, claiming to be Christians. This is the visible church. This is the body that we can see, which is called the church. And the invisible church are those people that are truly born again, that are known to the Lord Jesus, who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those people are the true church, and they're found all over the place, mixed in. The true church of Jesus Christ is mixed in with unbelievers. Obviously, in some churches, there are more, and some there are less. I pray that in our church, the vast majority of us are true believers. And this parable is directed at people that call themselves Christians, who say, Lord, Lord, and claim the name of the Lord Jesus. And all this teaching, and today's parable, has one common theme. And the theme is that those who profess to be Christians... Those who have a particular calling should live up to the calling and not just say words which pertain to that calling, but actually should live in a way which reflects the reality of conversion. So we have this parable about the ten virgins. And today we're going to look at it. David summarized it very well. I'd like to expand a little bit more on it. I hope it will be helpful for us. So these ten virgins... As David said, these were probably bridesmaids, what we would call bridesmaids. They're they're virgins because they were young, unmarried women who would perform this task in the Jewish culture of the time of Jesus. And I want to put it to you today that all these girls had one thing in common and four things which were different. 
So what did they have in common? Well, the first thing they had in common, the only thing they had in common was that they all knew what was going to happen. They all knew what to expect and they all should have been ready. Bridesmaids at the time of Jesus knew very well what was expected of them. No doubt they'd attended weddings all their lives. There were lots of weddings in the Jewish culture, and no doubt these girls had participated in many weddings. They would have known since they were little girls what kind of traditions they had and how they were practiced and what people expected. Every girl who was chosen to be a bridesmaid at that time would have known exactly what her role was, what her duties were, and what was expected of her on that day. Don't think that these girls were somehow ignorant. They just didn't know what was expected of them. Any good bridesmaid of that time, and probably today as well, was expected to show diligence, thoughtfulness, care, attention, to, uh, care, you know, um, details, resourcefulness, the ability to carry out her duty well. And I think any, any bride worthy of the name would have chosen bridesmaids who were, were up to the task that she trusted to perform their duties well. If you're a man, you're choosing, I can only speak from a man's perspective, if you're choosing a best man for your wedding, you're going to choose someone that you can trust to bring the wedding ring on the day and not forget it. Fumbling around in the church trying to find the ring. Oh, which pocket did I put it in? You choose someone that you trust, who knows what a best man is supposed to do. And a Jewish bride would have chosen girls that she trusted and knew exactly what was expected of them. What was going on in this story? Well, David's explained it better than I could, but there are different interpretations, different understandings of what a Jewish wedding at the time of Jesus would have looked like and what these ten girls in the story were doing. Some think that one of the main duties of Jewish bride, bride, bridesmaids were to prepare the bride to meet the bridegroom when he came to her house to take her to the wedding banquet. Or some people think perhaps the job was to meet the bridegroom to lead him to the chamber, the bridal chamber where the bride was waiting. In any case, these girls had to wait for the bridegroom and take him to where the bride was. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but that's kind of the idea that's going on. Notice the actual bride is not mentioned in this story. But we can assume the bride was there, the bride was with the girls at the time. These customs and traditions were very familiar to the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, as familiar as our wedding customs are for us. You know, cutting the cake, exchanging rings. The, the people at the time would have known these customs. It was part of the culture. I say this because I want you to be very convinced that these, these girls knew what they should have been doing. So we've got these ten girls on the day of the wedding, waiting to meet the bridegroom. And like, like with our Lord Jesus Christ, they knew very well that he was definitely coming at some point, but they did not know the exact time that he would arrive. And Jewish weddings took place in the evening. It was dark. And as we know, they had to take some lamps with them or torches. Actually, they probably were more like a torch, a wooden stick with a, a rag on top which had been dipped in oil, which was ignited, and they could carry it around the streets in a procession with the bride. Of course, as David said, there were no street lamps. It would have been pitch black in the night. And if they didn't have these torches to illuminate the way, the bridal party would have got lost somewhere. They wouldn't have been able to, to make their way to the bride, the bridegroom's house. <clears throat> so all the girls knew what was expected of them. They knew the culture. They knew their duties. They weren't just ignorant. They were negligent. Second thing to note 
that was the thing they had in common. What, they had, had, what the difference was between them was that some were wise and some were foolish. Look at verse 1. All of the girls got one thing right. They all took torches with them. Look at this. It says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So they, they, they got one thing right. They took the torches with them and went out to meet the bridegroom. But Jesus tells us that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. The wise ones anticipate that the bridegroom might be delayed. And they take along some extra oil because they anticipate that their lamps may go out and they might need to top up the oil to make the lamps burn longer. The last thing they need is for their lamps to be going out when they need them most. If the lamps go out, they will jeopardize the the successful journey of the bridal party to the groom or vice versa, the groom to the bride. The whole mission will be spoiled if they don't have these lamps. They're essential to completing the task. And those wise girls, they take their responsibilities seriously, don't they? Their hearts are in it. They care. They, they, They want to meet the bridegroom. They want to do their job well. They're enthusiastic. They do what they need to do. What about the foolish ones? Well, these girls, they take their lamps. They take no extra oil. I thought about this. I thought, why did they not take any extra oil? Maybe they just assume they'll have enough to get by. Maybe they miscalculate the amount they'll need. Perhaps they don't think the bridegroom will take that long in coming. Maybe they just just can't be bothered to take extra oil. Maybe they look at the girls that do take the oil and they think, why are they worrying themselves? Why are they taking things far too seriously? Have you ever heard that as a Christian? People think you're taking things far too seriously. Just relax. Don't take your Christianity. Yeah, be a Christian, but don't take it too seriously. Just chill out, relax, it's okay. Maybe they assume the more diligent girls, the wise girls, will help them out if they need, need it. You know, so we run out of oil, but these girls will definitely help us. Let them take the oil, we don't need to do it. Or it could be they just don't care. They just don't take their role seriously. Any Jewish woman listening to this, I believe, would have... Would have shaking her head incredulously and said, how could these girls have been so stupid? How could they have been so foolish? Everybody knows you take extra oil when you're in a wedding party like that. Nobody could have said, you know, you can't, you know, how can you blame them? They couldn't have, nobody could have predicted that. It was totally predictable, the situation. And as I said, we mustn't assume that these girls made a foolish mistake, an innocent mistake, or they just lack common sense or they lack experience. In the Bible, a lack of of wisdom, foolishness, is connected with moral failure. Read the book of Proverbs. Foolishness, the fool, is a moral reprobate. It's not just somebody who lacks intelligence, lacks experience. It's somebody who's morally corrupt. These girls are not just woolly-headed. They're not just absent-minded. We're all absent-minded, me more than most. These girls are negligent. They're irresponsible. They'd seen the other girls taking the extra oil. That should have been a warning to them, a reminder to them, but they didn't take it. The girls want to be at the banquet. They all want to be there, don't they? We see that at the end. Because of their inability or unwillingness to make an effort, they cannot perform their part in the festivities. They cannot live up to the calling of a bride, a bridesmaid, because they're not prepared to make an effort. 
They want the celebration, but with zero effort, with zero diligence, and zero obedience. This parable illustrates a very important point, doesn't it, dear friends? The bridesmaids represent the visible church of Jesus Christ, the people that are called by his name or call themselves by his name. Christian people are called to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus with eager anticipation. We profess to be waiting for the bridegroom. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the bridegroom very often. And Jesus also appropriates that and calls himself, refers, refers to himself as the bridegroom. And the church of Jesus Christ is to be waiting for the bridegroom to come. These people in this story, these virgins, are not people who have nothing to do with the bridegroom. They're not unbelievers. They're people that are called by his name. If you're a Christian, that is your calling, that is your purpose, one of your roles, one of your... One of the parts of your calling is to be waiting for the Lord Jesus, eagerly anticipating his return. That's, that's what Christians do. That's essential for Christians. Not for some Christians, that's for all Christians. But not all people in the visible church, like the bridesmaids, not all are wise and not all are ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. Now, you might ask the question, what does Jesus expect his people to do to prepare for his return? That's a good question. Look at verse 13. What does he say? Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the punchline of the parable, the summary of the parable. Does this mean that Christians are to be constantly looking out the window, not doing anything, just watching out for the Lord Jesus? Probably there are a few, few strange people that do believe this, that to wait for the Lord Jesus, to watch for him, means to do nothing at all, just to sit around waiting in some bunker somewhere, stockpiling food. I'm sure it goes on in America. You get these kind of weird sects and groups that go off. The Lord Jesus is coming, we, we do nothing at all. But friends, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Preparing for the Lord Jesus is not just sitting around waiting for him to come. Preparing for the Lord Jesus is a life of activity and service and fruitfulness productivity and I believe preparing for the Lord Jesus being ready for his return is a matter of taking his words seriously, all his words taking the Bible seriously, applying it obeying it believing it a life of faith not just a life of lip service it's a hobby Christianity, true conversion Many good men believe the oil in this parable represents the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes we can go too far and apply the details of the parables too much. But it's definitely true, isn't it? The true Christian is marked by the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit, you do not have God. You do not have Christ. Any true Christian who's been converted has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Somebody can have the form of Christianity, but if you do not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, it will just be an outward form, a torch with no oil. And evidence of the Holy Spirit working in the life of a believer is not funny stuff and not emotional hype. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is a life marked by obedience to Christ. 
spiritual alertness, awakeness, a sensitivity to the word of God, a desire for holiness, a desire to push on and grow in holiness and make progress in the things of God. Evidence of the Holy Spirit working in someone is a vibrant, living, personal faith, a relationship with the Lord Jesus. As I said, a sensitivity to the word of God, a desire to hear the word, a desire to imbibe it and to obey it and to apply it. What is the Lord saying to me? I'm going to come to church and hear the word of God because I need to hear this. This is important for my soul because I love my Lord. This is a mark of the Holy Spirit working in someone. A true Christian wants to make progress in the Christian life. A nominal hobby Christian doesn't have any concern about that. But a true Christian says, I know my Lord. I have that vital living union with him. And I want to grow. I want to serve him better. And I want to love him more. And I love his people. And I want to serve him. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers is a concern, a love for other Christians, a love for the church of Jesus Christ. Let me say this, if you don't have a genuine love for other Christians, we, we all fall short in this area, if you don't have a life of love for other Christians, you probably seriously need to question whether you're a true believer. Because Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is an absolute hallmark of a true Christian. Of course, we, we need the Lord's help, don't we, to do better in this area. But it should be evident to some degree in your life. And there should be a concern for the lost, and a concern for the kingdom, and a concern for the glory of Jesus Christ. The one overriding principle that guides my life is devotion to my Lord. I'm his servant. I want to, to please him with every fiber of my being. Now, of course, I, I'm not speaking as someone who's achieved this, but this, is, this should be the, the desire of a Christian who's regenerate by the Holy Spirit. That should be the, the evidence of true growth, true faith. The Christian who is exhibiting these things will be ready whenever the Lord comes. Whenever he comes, you'll be ready if these things are part of your life. So there were some wise girls and there were some foolish girls. When the bridegroom came again, some were ready and some were not. Jesus goes on with his story. So it says in verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time coming. The girls had had a lot, you know what it's like on a wedding day, you're absolutely exhausted by the end of it. On my own wedding day, I was, you know, I, was, I was zonked out at the end. It's exhausting. People, duties, things to do. The girls were tired, they had a busy day. And not surprisingly, they fell asleep. From drowsy, nodded off. There's no suggestion they were wrong to do so. Some people say, well, this means the church will go to sleep. I don't believe that. It's just a symbol. You know, they're just tired. It's natural to rest a bit before they continue the festivities. But the wise girls who had extra oil, they could go to sleep. They could have a little rest, knowing that they were ready whenever the bridegroom came. They had the oil, they were ready for him. So it didn't matter. In the same way, we Christian people, we are busy, aren't we, about the things of this world. We have to work, we put food on the table, we bring up children, and that is all right and good. That is all right and good. But we must be prepared when the Lord comes. Verse 6, a cry went out at midnight. The bridegroom has arrived, come and meet him. We don't know how long they've been waiting. I think midnight seems quite late to me. Um, by our standards, probably by their standards as well. 
You know what? Some people believe the bridegroom was delayed because he was, he was coming to a financial settlement with the father of the bride. They were kind of haggling over the bride price. I don't know if that's true or not. But in any case, he was delayed and he was late in coming. Had they started to doubt whether the bridegroom would come at all? Started to think, well, is he, is he really going to come? Perhaps he's, perhaps he's you know, done a runner, got cold feet and gone off somewhere. I don't know, but because he was delayed, they started to doubt, perhaps. I don't know. Even so, they had no excuse for being caught out. So there's the girls having 40 winks, and suddenly, suddenly there's this cry of the watchman, the person guarding, says, look, here comes the bridegroom. See, you know what it's like when you're woken up? A rude awakening, suddenly you're fumbling all around trying to look for stuff. And these girls are fumbling for their lamps. Not surprisingly, the lamps are flickering, they're going out. The wise ones have enough oil, they get their oil, they, they soak their rags, they trim their lamps, and they're ready to meet the bridegroom. The foolish ones realize in a panic they don't have enough oil. Their lamps are going out, they try to trim them, but there's nothing to, to, to soak them in, so they might continue to burn. And then they do something very audacious and cheeky, they actually go to the wise ones, they say, Give us some of your oil. Lamps are going out. They ask their friends, the wise ones, to to lend them or give them some of their oil. The wise ones refuse. What do they say? Let's look here. It says, no, verse 9, there may not be enough for both you and us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. You might think these girls are being selfish, not sharing their oil. But had they tried to share it, there wouldn't have been enough to go around. All their lamps would have gone out. They wouldn't have been able to escort the bride the bridegroom to his bride. They would have failed in their task. They're not being selfish, they're just being realistic. These foolish girls go off to try to find some oil late at night and probably, I don't know what their shops were like in the night, but they were probably walking the darkened streets of the town trying to find someone who was still awake selling oil at that time of night. This parable reminds us that when Jesus comes, many people will be, will be caught out, completely exposed and unaware. If you're not a Christian here today, you will be caught out. Unless you repent and turn to the Lord Jesus in faith, you will be caught out on that day. You will be about your business, and suddenly the Lord will come, and you will be completely shocked and taken unawares. But also, there will be many, many, I believe, professing Christians will also be caught unawares. People who paid lip service to believing the Lord was coming. They, every week they sang the hymns about the Lord coming back and heard scriptures read. But whose unpro- unproductive, worldly lives demonstrate they didn't really believe in it at all. Because if you believe something, you act upon it. If you're on the Titanic and it's sinking, you really believe it's sinking, you're going to run to the lifeboat and get into that lifeboat, aren't you? So oh, I believe the ship's sinking, but you don't go to the lifeboat. You don't really believe it's sinking at all. But if you believe, you truly believe the Lord is coming, you will not be just loafing around doing nothing at all. Imagine, dear friends, if a cry went out this afternoon. So you're sitting having your you know, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, whatever you do this afternoon. Having a, having a snooze. That's what I plan to do. Imagine if the Lord Jesus, there was suddenly a cry coming out. Here's the Lord Jesus, come and meet him. 
Would you be ready? Would you be happy for the Lord to find you as you are now? Do you regard this as a genuine possibility, or is it sort of pie in the sky? Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose, but you're not really convinced about it. Be convinced. The Word of God is very clear about this. I believe if this happened today, many, many professing Christians will be thrown into a panic. Like the foolish girls who asked the wise ones to share their oil, they probably would go to genuine Christians they know and say, oh, please help me, please help me. Can I, can I borrow your faith? I don't know how it would work. Please, somehow, can I benefit from you? Because you're a spiritual Christian, you're a godly Christian, and I, I need you to help me. The warning here is that your, your lack of faith cannot be compensated for by somebody else's faith. You might turn to other people on that day, other Christians you know, asking for help. That will not help you on that day. Their faith cannot pay for you as well. If you don't have your own spiritual walk with the Lord, if you don't have your own obedience and readiness, their readiness, their obedience, their diligence will not help you on that day. cannot help you. Nobody else is responsible for your spiritual life except you are. Don't expect somebody else on that day to carry you through. It's not going to work if you haven't got anything to show. Some serious questions. You know, friends, the Word of God is very serious and very practical. I know this is a bit somber and a bit serious. It's meant to be solemn. But there is good news and there is encouragement. And I don't want you today to lose the encouragement in the face of warning. But it's worth being honest with ourselves and asking some serious questions. Ask this question to yourself. Do you have, do we have a genuine interest in personal and corporate spiritual growth? What, what I mean by that is, do you, do you want to grow as a Christian? And do you want to see the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, growing together? Is that a passion for you? Is that something you're concerned about? Or is it something you're totally unconcerned about? Are you concerned about evangelism? about reaching the lost. If you believe this is true, there's no message more important in the whole world. Are you concerned about building the kingdom, being obedient, asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do with my life, my resources, my time, my efforts for serving you? Are you passionate about the gospel? Are you passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ being exalted in your life? Are you concerned about personal holiness? Are you grieved by your sin? Lord, I fall so far short. Please help me. Help me to serve you better, to love you more. Or are we the kind of people that only get passionate about transient, passing things? Things that will not last into eternity. Dear friends, it grieves me when I speak to Christians. and I know this in my own heart as well. You talk to Christians and professing Christians, all they talk about is absolute nonsense. They talk about gibberish talking about stuff which has no value and that they're passionate about stuff, excited about stuff, which is passing, worldly. Yes, it's okay to talk about the football. It's okay to talk about the weather. It's okay to talk about your job. But where's the passion for the Lord Jesus? Where's the concern for the gospel? What really excites you? What makes you passionate? What makes you, um, drives you to prayer? It's difficult, isn't it? Our hearts are so distracted. Mine is as well. Think about the priorities of your life. What are your priorities? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your thought life? How do you spend your money? Is it reflected in gospel things, things of the kingdom? 
Are we taking steps to grow spiritually? Because spiritual growth doesn't just happen. The Lord has given us means of grace. The Lord has given us things which help us to grow as Christians and persevere as Christians. One of those things is church involvement. And I want to bang the same drum, but it's very important that you should be part of a biblical church. That The church is one of the means that God has given us to help us to be ready for his return. If you're not part of a church, if you just come along once in a blue moon, or you're not really that, you're maybe here every week or in a church every week, but you're not really involved with people, you're not serving in any way, then that's not a biblical picture of church. And you will find that your spiritual alertness and readiness is diminished if you're not part of a church. It doesn't have to be this church. If you don't like this church, find another church where the word is preached. But go and be part of a church. Prayer is very important. If you want to be ready for the Lord Jesus, pray. Pray fervently. Pray at all, on all occasions, at all times. Pray at home alone. Pray on the bus. Come to the, the prayer meetings and meet with God's people and encourage other people to pray. We all find prayer difficult. You might come to the prayer meeting and find this is the most tedious thing I've ever been to. Come again next week and pray and bring something to share. Prayer helps us to be ready for the Lord Jesus. Keeps us alert, keeps us spiritually alive and vibrant. The Word of God is important. If your Bible is on your shelf, you've all got it on your smartphones, read it. Don't let it be on the shelf. Get off Facebook, Twitter, and read the Word of God. Unless, of course, you're using Facebook to read Christian things. It's quite a good, some good stuff on there these days. And an awful lot of nonsense, too. If I, was, if I was king of this country, I'd ban Facebook. Just such a waste of time. But it can be used rightly, don't get me wrong. Means of grace. Use the word of God. Love the word of God. The word of God is not some dry, boring book. Read it and buy it and make you ready. Obey it. Share it with other people. Speak it. Do we make choices sacrificial choices to choose good and godly things over things which weaken and distract us. There are so many things, aren't there, in this world? So many voices calling to us. Have this, have this, do this. Some of those things are very good things to do. But isn't it sad when you meet a Christian who's so distracted by other stuff that God, the Lord Jesus, is somehow pushed to one side Life is just full of all this other stuff, other priorities. Life is busy. It's difficult to survive. We have to work, as I said. We have to do things in this world. But sometimes difficult choices need to be made. If you want to be ready for the Lord Jesus, you may have to make very painful choices and cut off things which are very important to you, which are not helping you spiritually, which weaken you and distract you. Are you spurring other people on to spiritual readiness and alertness. None of us is an island. Your Christian faith is not to be lived in some kind of bubble. God has ordained it that we should be part of a church, a worldwide church, but also a local church. It's important that we look out, not just for ourselves, but for other people as well. Each of us has a role to play in encouraging other people to be vibrant and spiritually alert and ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. What part are you playing in that task? 
Can you look at yourself and say, well, I'm actually giving myself to encouraging the church of Jesus Christ, to building up people, to helping them to be alert? If not, perhaps you need to think about it. If you are walking as you should be as a Christian, and you can say, yes, I am serving the Lord to the best of my ability, and I love him, and I am looking forward to his return, my encouragement to you is to persevere and to keep going. A few years ago, I went through a period where I felt spiritual lethargy coming over my life. When I was a young Christian, I was vibrant, I was on fire, I was trying to witness for the Lord. I was reading his word and memorizing it. And over the years, my heart grew cold. I still loved the Lord. I was still a genuine Christian, but I got so distracted. I felt a coldness in prayer and just a coldness towards the people of God. So important that we persevere as Christians in this. Some people think the Lord Jesus is a long time in coming. Like the bridegroom, he seems to be taking a long time. 2,000 years have gone by and he's still not here. Let me give you this warning. Peter says as much in his epistle, the second epistle, second letter. He says this, In the last days, scoffers will come, mockers. They'll say this, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter says, In the last days, which we're living in now, People will come mocking the idea of the return of Christ, even in the church. They'll say, where's this coming? Maybe he's not coming at all. Maybe we misinterpreted the return of Christ. It's not a literal coming again. It's a metaphorical, spiritual allegory. Dear friends, the Bible could not be more clear. This is a literal event. It's going to happen. It may take a long time. God's timing is not our timing. With the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The danger is that we become lazy and complacent and start really doubting whether the Lord will come at all. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the return of the Lord Jesus is a glorious doctrine spoken of frequently as an inspiration to Christian people, something that we should look forward to, that should spur us on. And Christian ministry, Christian services, is essentially, I believe, about preparing people to meet the Lord. When you teach the Sunday school, or teach your children the word of God, or evangelize and witness to the lost, you are preparing them in some way to meet the Lord. Point number five. So we've got these wise and foolish girls. Some were ready, some were not ready. And now we look at the outcome of the story. Some went into the wedding, into the celebration, and some were excluded. So while these foolish girls are going off to buy oil, verse 10, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. So these these wise girls who had that extra oil, who were ready to perform their task as as bridesmaids, they went into the celebration. They went into the wedding and there was great rejoicing. If you've been to a Jewish wedding, I've been to a Jewish wedding in Ukraine, it's really exuberant, joyful time. Plenty of dancing, plenty of music, tambourines, lots of food. Jewish wedding is great rejoicing. Picture of the kingdom of God, that great feast that all Christians will be at. But the door of that feast is shut to 
keep out intruders and gatekeepers. Gate crashers, not gatekeepers, gate crashers. As far as those who are inside are concerned, everybody who should be there is in there already. And the door is shut. Nobody else is expected. But very sadly, these five foolish girls, presumably they found some oil somewhere, they bought some oil, they arrive at the wedding, they find the party's in full swing. The door is shut and locked and bolted, but they can hear the music probably from outside. They can picture in their mind the joyful scenes inside. They think to themselves, surely we'll be admitted, we'll be let in, even though we're late. They knock at the door, don't they? Look at verse 11. Sir, sir, open the door for us. But it's a plaintive cry. That's why the word sir is repeated twice. It's sir, sir, pleading, open the door for us. But their plea falls on deaf ears. The bridegroom, I don't know why the bridegroom went to the door, the master of the house, I suppose. He's distracted from his bride. He's distracted from the festivities to come and deal with these, uh, these intruders, these gate crashers. Nuisance. What does he say? He makes a very, very solemn pronouncement. Verse 12. I tell you the truth. I don't know you. When he says, I don't know you, he's not just saying, oh, so, sorry girls, I, I, don't, I just don't recognize you. I'd love to let you in, but I, just, I can't really see you in the dark and I don't really know who you are. This, this is a solemn pronouncement. I don't know you. I've got nothing to do with you. Now go away. It's as harsh as that. That's how it comes across in the Greek. It's a harsh, solemn pronouncement. Go away. I don't know you. I've got nothing to do with you. Now leave. Decisive message of rejection. That may sound a bit harsh to us. But these girls have not fulfilled their role. They've not done what they were called to do. And these girls, these five foolish, negligent girls, had to make their way home through the dark streets, back to their cold beds, picturing the scenes that they could have been part of. Their price of admittance to that banquet was their readiness, their willingness, their diligence in performing the task and being ready for the bridegroom. And they had not lived up to it, and they had missed out. And they had bitter regret, no doubt some tears. They only had themselves to blame. But meanwhile, the five wise girls were enjoying the party and enjoying sharing the joy of the bride and groom. And friends, let me say this. There's an awful finality in those words. The door was shut. The picture that Jesus talks about uses for his own return. The door is shut. We live in a day of grace. At the moment, there's an opportunity to be ready for the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. One day, that door will shut. Those who are ready will be admitted into the kingdom with great joy and great rejoicing. When that door shuts, those who are the Lord's will be sealed inside in safety, in joy, protected from sin, safe from darkness and the devil, rejoicing with their Lord at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be others, those from the visible church and others as well, who will beg to be, to be admitted into the kingdom. Say, oh yeah, but I, I really was a Christian and I, I did really believe. And of course I believe in you, Lord Jesus, but the door will be shut and they will beg and they will knock and the door will not be opened 
and their doom will be sealed for all eternity and it will be their fault and nobody will be to blame but themselves. Now hear those words of Jesus, I don't know you. There may be some here today who will hear those words on that day, I don't know you. The important thing is, is are we known by the Lord Jesus? If we are, praise the Lord, persevere, be ready and you will enter that, that joy. But if not, be challenged today. Listen to these words and make yourself ready. Resolve today. Today's the day that's going to change. I'm going to make myself ready. Whatever the cost, whatever I have to discard in my life. Because nothing's more important than being in that banquet with the Lord. Let me just once again emphasize this. There may be some who would, would have said on that day, but I was a bridesmaid and I was expecting to go to the party. I could have gone. Why can't I come in? There may be some, many, who say, but I was a Christian. I went to church. I heard the word of God. I believed in the Lord Jesus in my own way. Why can't I enter the kingdom? Sadly, their life showed no evidence of genuine conversion, of genuine work of God. There was no readiness. There was no urgency. And I want to give a particular warning today. If you're somebody who claims to be a Christian and you have Christian friends who are very genuine and serious about their faith and are making a serious attempt to be ready for the Lord Jesus I want you to take an example from them and learn from them because as I said at the beginning those five foolish girls saw the five wise girls taking the oil with them they should have taken that as a warning to them this is what you should do as well and if you're somebody who claims to be a Christian but has this serious Christian friend and you think well I'm not as serious as them but on the day of judgment it'll be okay because I'm a Christian as well I'll go in with them I don't think that's the case you need to make sure that you, you are ready in your own way as ready as they are and take a lesson from them and be serious you might say well it's okay for them but I don't need to be like that my dear friend you do need to be like that their faith will not carry you through on that day And if you're a Christian here today, and you you say, I am a genuine Christian, I do love the Lord Jesus, but I've fallen asleep. My life's become full of distractions. Perhaps it was an unhelpful relationship. Perhaps it was, you know, some kind of hobby which is sucking all the life out of you. Whatever it might be, we need to get serious with God. We need to be ready for his return. We need to get rid of those things, whatever the cost, and come back to this genuine, serious faith in the Lord Jesus. Dear friends, salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not works, but if there's genuine faith, and genuine grace, and genuine presence of the Holy Spirit, it will be evidenced by his urgency and readiness and godliness. And if you're not a Christian here today, let me urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him for your salvation, and you will be saved if you truly believe. But I don't want to be to end on a, on a somber note. I know it's, it's been quite. J.C. Ryle called this one of the most somber, solemn parables in the whole Bible. I wouldn't be doing it justice if I was, you know, flippant about this. It is important. But I don't want to end on this solemn note. I want to encourage you. If you're a Christian, you, you're longing for the return of the Lord Jesus. You believe this with all your heart. You love Him. You say. I know this life is not my final destination. My destination is in the great banquet with the Lord. I need to be ready. 
And if you are walking as you should be, and we all fall short, and if you are alert, and you are spiritually vibrant, and if you're serving the Lord Jesus, and if your heart is, is full of desire to please him, and if you take his words seriously and take them to heart, praise God. Keep on doing those things until the day he comes. He may not come during your lifetime, but you cannot presume that he won't. He may come this afternoon. Be ready. Today is the day you need to be ready. If you are ready, keep on persevering. And dear friends, if, if that's you, then look forward to that banquet. Look forward to that, the return of the Lord Jesus with no fear, but with this joyous anticipation. My Lord, my precious Lord is coming. And there he is. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he glorious? This is what we've waited for. This is what we've longed for. The bridegroom comes. Let's rejoice. Let's be ready. Let's help each other be ready. You'll be welcomed into that banquet. Great rejoicing. Next week, we'll look at the parable of the talents, which is a slightly different emphasis. Um, come again. Pray for me as I bring the word next week. All these non-believers there. This is the day of salvation. If you, you want to talk to me afterwards about anything, I'll be available, or Chris, or anybody else. But let's get right with God. Let's sing last hymn I've chosen this it's often sung at Christmas but it talks about the return of the Lord Jesus be up on the screen from the squalor of a borrowed stable